0: Morning, let it pour. Tonight, we're in the groove together. Ain't gonna worry about stormy weather. Gonna kick all trouble out the door. Beat out old trouble and drum, out all trouble and Beat out old on the drum, and kick all trouble out the door Beat me that rhythm on the drum Beat me that rhythm on the drum Beat me that rhythm on the drum And kick all trouble out the door Kick him out the door
1: Welcome to Radical Australia on Community Radio 3CR. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. My name's Joseph Toscano. I've got an interesting uh, guest today. But before we go on to uh, our guest, over the next four weeks, because of the COVID-19 Stage 4 restrictions, it's becoming more and more difficult for staff at 3CR to uh, continue all the programs. So to give people a little bit of relief, uh, over the next four weeks, we'll be doing some repeats of uh, our more extraordinary interviews or extraordinary interviews or boring interviews, whatever you think. But uh, keep listening to Radical Australia, and uh, hopefully once the uh, lockdown, um, coming into the, the lockdown, we'll be able to restart the uh, live interviews with uh, interesting people. Now, on the line, I've got uh, a recidivist, Mr. Terry Stadrisis. How are you, Terry?
2: Uh, good morning, Joe. I'm well, thanks.
1: And yourself? Well, look, uh, Terry. It's not morning; it's afternoon. This program—it's four o'clock. Well, do not you get out of the wrong side of the bed, did you? <laughs>
2: I'm sitting in the car here, uh, being interviewed by you.
1: You're sitting in the car. I well, hope, hopefully, hopefully, Victoria's finest don't knock on your door, and then the Defence Forces knock, break your window because you're talking to me. Okay? Yeah. Fair enough. Fair
2: enough.
1: Now, Terry, i just got to do a little bit of uh, background information on you because uh, I think it's a few years since I last interviewed you, maybe a year or so ago. That's now, right. Terry, I, I would describe you as a, a genocide scholar and, and an author. Now, um, how old are you?
2: Um, let's say I'm in my late uh, 60s, okay?
1: Late 60s. And uh, how long have you been uh, working on uh, scholarship regarding genocide for?
2: Um I I started that uh to around 19 uh 8788 so I've been at it for over 30 years.
1: Mm. What led you into that field?
2: Well, well being uh being uh, 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 of Greek background. Well, my ancestors or grandfathers on on my father and the mother side, uh, one came from Istanbul and the other one was born on the island of lemnos so uh so when so when i was growing up i used to hear my mother and dad and aunts and uncles uh, talk about greeks and armenians and you know and all that sort of stuff and you know and and somehow that just stuck in my mind but you know but i didn't take any notice of it until until i started uh doing uh, sort of like my honors year and all that and and it, and it just took off from there
1: mm. So, what areas you particularly uh, specialise in? What areas you specialise in?
2: Well, well, actually, my my main area the, the, it's really sort of like um, one big field, but it has quite a, quite a few uh, subfields to it. Like, like for example, my my sort of uh, overall is uh, modern Greek history and and late Ottoman Empire history, uh, with sort of subfields of you know genocide, uh, the involvement of great powers, conflict, and and that sort of stuff.
1: Right now, I understand you've got. uh, We'll talk about this later, but I understand you're uh, on the verge of publishing uh, a book on a specific genocide.
2: Well, well, well. The book, uh, the book that that, uh, that's going to be released soon. It's actually called Tales from the Last Days of Anatolia. Now, it's not really. It's actually historical fiction. So, over the last twelve months, I've decided to change tack, and move slightly Mm -hmm. away from pure diplomatic or political history, even economic history, and start to uh, use all the vast knowledge that, that I've had to uh, write historical fiction and also to, to uh, unashamedly, it's time to monetise uh, so, so some of this knowledge.
1: Monetize, I like that. <laughs> I think you've left it a bit late. <laughs> now, now, I understand you've also been doing some fascinating research which is relevant to the COVID nineteen uh, pandemic mm. we're currently uh, suffering is you looked at the you're looking at the influenza epidemic uh, pandemic uh, spe- specifically in Australia in nineteen nineteen is that correct?
2: Well, uh, I'm actually looking at it uh, globally. I'll tell you how how it actually came into being. Uh, I'll tell you how it sort of came into uh, that. It came in by by accident about about three months or so ago. Uh, I received a phone call from the newspaper that I'm a, free, a fr- freelancer and uh, they were asking me, they said, oh boy, we, we have a whole heap of your articles here, unpublished. Which one, In what order do you want them published? I said, well, I don't particularly care what order, to just publish the things. And, um, and, then, and then he started asking me about, oh, how's the COVID-19 down your ways and all that? And then, then he said to me, why don't you write an article on it? Well, I said, I said look, I don't feel qualified enough to write about COVID-19 because the thing is unfolding. And a lot of the information that's coming out is uh, a lot of scientific, and that's a little bit beyond my my understanding. So I'm not going to dabble in things that I don't understand. And even if I did have a little bit of knowledge on it, uh, I could write something stupid and actually make a fool of myself. So I'm not prepared to do that. I said, but one thing I can do for you I could write a general piece about what happened during the Spanish pandemic of a uh, hundred years ago. I'm not going to get into the scientific aspects of it. You know what, how it was. Uh, you know uh, what the virus was made of and how they tried to. So I, I'm just going to give you the origins, the, the different phases of it, and, and the reactions of governments at the time. That's it. A, a general piece. So I actually wrote. So wrote a wrote an 800 uh, word piece for the National Herald in New York and mm-hmm. out of that uh, came um, came sort of like looking at now uh, I'm sort of examining the 1918 in that period there uh, country by country and also also to um, I'm going to look at the specific cities I've even created a, a Facebook page uh, on that and uh, and I'm just uh, putting up the general information and uh, and um, I made it very clear: no conspiracy theories, nothing to do with COVID-19. This will just focus on the events of 100 years ago. So, so we can get at least step back a little bit from what's taking place now and just look at what happened 100 years ago. So at least we can try to get an understanding of what happened then. So, so then we can shine a light on what's happening uh, today.
1: Right. So, so what did you learn?
2: Well, it, well, really what what we're seeing is today, like for example like the wearing of face masks, they were wearing it then um, and and the, the one thing that I have picked up at least from a scientific aspect is when people got the Spanish flu back then, they didn't live very long, they, they, some of them died within a week, whereas, whereas with this thing, you, you may not have it straight away but it sort of manifests itself a few weeks later and Some people get very sick, some people die, uh, but but it has a a longer incubation period, the COVID-19, whereas the other one, when it hits you, it really hits you really, really for a six, straight away within a matter of days.
1: So which um, countries were worst affected? Do you got any idea? Uh,
2: What, we're talking about
1: 1918?
2: Um, Well, according... well, Well... It's estimated, I think the Earth's population was about two two, two and a half billion at the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, They reckon around, uh, historians sort of estimate around 50 million people died
1: globally. Right. So so when you said you're looking at city by city, which cities were hardest hit, do you think?
2: Well, for example, one, uh, well, like New York. New York was hit very hard. Uh, um even even some of the australian cities which were you know g- small in number uh e- even they had pretty big uh, numbers as well look i haven't I haven't studied yet the the australian uh, situation mm-hmm. but uh mm-hmm. but i'm uh, i'm very fortunate that i do have primary source uh, documents from the national archives here, so which i haven't looked at yet but i had a quick look through them so so there is a lot of so there is a lot of material there which, which I'll need to, to, to examine so, um, so what I'm doing is I'm actually collecting this uh, to Sort of like, I don't know, maybe become like, like, an, like a reference work Like an encyclopedia of 1918 And, um, and, and hopefully actually publish it as a book or, or maybe as a series of articles I really don't know mm-hmm. at this stage I'm just taking it day by day
1: So how, how were people coping? What were they doing to protect themselves? Generally, apart from masks.
2: Well, well, when, when when the virus see see can I just explain uh, the the early uh, the, the virus actually started in the uh, in, around April uh, 1918 and sort of finished the first phase until I think it was around about the middle of July 1918. That, that was the first phase, and and the numbers were were quite mild, and and authorities didn't take much notice of it. But, but come September to, uh, to December, which was the second phase, that was the one that really hit really hard. It's, it, it, when the troops started coming home, uh, you know, the, and large numbers were getting together, that's when it spread so, uh, so quickly. Uh, but, but, for example, um, I was actually reading in... Uh, this is based on newspaper reports, so, so the figures could be exaggerated, they could be understated. But these are some of the figures uh, that I got. Uh, in uh, the, London, the the correspondent of the, of the London Times in New York, um, he he uh, he published figures that from from September to December 1918, over 300,000 Americans died, ordinary citizens, and about mm-hmm. 20,000 uh, soldiers died in the barracks. So over well over 320,000 just died from that in South Africa. Um, in the in the months of uh, September, October, I think, or, or November, around 50,000 people died. Mm-hmm. So 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 the uh, in Britain. I think it was about I think about 75 or 80,000 died at, at that time. Uh, as such. So uh, it did. It did. Uh, w- once it went, once it hit a place, it just spread like wildfire. Because once you get a large group of people together, and you know, once one's once a carrier, I get it, he passes on to the next, he passes on to you, and it's just a, and it's just a multiplier effect.
1: Right. So it's similar to COVID nineteen, but you said it was mm. much much more severe.
2: Yeah, 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 yeah. Now one of the. Uh, uh, actually, actually, a lot of people called it that the Spanish flu, but that's a, that's really a misnomer. The the reason why it, it got that name was because during the First World War, Spain was actually neutral, so its press didn't have the restrictions that operated in the in the in the uh, so-called good guys and, and the bad guys, which were, had mm-hmm. uh, had the political and military censorship. So 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 the Spanish press was was quite free. To, to publish uh, news accounts of this uh, of this uh, pandemic, but the Spanish got very upset. You know that they were sort of like blamed for all this. But you know they, they just the the newspapers are only actually reporting it.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, but in terms of its origins, uh, it's it's a, it's it's really qu- quite controversial. Uh, some people say it originated in China, for example. Uh, uh, Chinese uh, labourers uh, brought across by the French to work on the Western Front. For argument's sake, some people say it happened for, from the Russians on the Eastern Front. Others say it originated from the German troops on the Western Front in 1917. Uh, others say it originated in the United States when soldiers, uh, when the, when America entered the war in 1917, uh, on the crew on the on the warships that were going across with American troops when they landed in France in Brest. As soon as they got it, they passed it on to the French uh, nave, uh, navy uh, naval personnel, and it just spread. So no one knows exactly where it came from, but whatever it was, whatever its origin, it just spread like wildfire. So uh, whenever people came into uh, got contact with each other, it just spread, like like what like we've got now.
1: Right. Was there any government response to the uh, uh, to the pandemic in 1918, 1919? Well, what what was that, Joe? Were any government response, or did they just let it just die, You know, just go along its merry course, or did government? No, 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 the- no, no. It,
2: well, obviously they they didn't have the scientific knowledge that we have uh, today, but to t- they did their best to what they knew at the time. Uh, they they sort of uh, tried to close down you know mass gatherings. They uh, they they shut down schools. Uh, the enforcement of masks, uh, as such. Uh, the, it's interesting. Uh, I, I've seen uh, photos on Google uh, images in Seattle in, in the US. Uh, police are, actually were wearing masks.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So, so it's not a new thing wearing masks.
1: No. And the New South um, Wales border was also closed.
2: Yes, yes, yes it, was, it was the same thing. And one, one, one interesting thing is uh, in late 1918. The, the Australian government of the time actually quarantined some of the troop ships that were coming back for for a week, mm-hmm. and uh, and and of course you know they uh, they were supposed not to go back to their village or hamlet or wherever they lived, and you know and that's that's how it started to spread uh, in Australia. But at that time, Australia did a reasonably good job like, like quarantining the, uh, the the ships you know coming back from uh, from Europe and and cruise ships.
1: Uh, well, we'd have a long history of quarantine because the only thing you could do, I remember when ships used to come across, remember the Queenscliff here in Melbourne, the Queenscliff quarantine station, when ships used to come across. If you were sick, uh, there's in the 19th century, and early 20th century, you were dropped off at the uh-huh. quarantine station. If you survived, you survived, and if you didn't, you didn't. And uh, this was the only way they could actually contain things like uh, cholera and uh, typhoid, and the list goes on and on. Uh, it's not... Well, another, another aspect of more research so I just remembered now is,
2: um, I was looking at the, in the Pacific. For example, uh, Samoa, which was, uh, well, the Samoan islands, uh, one part belonged to America, another one uh, belonged to, uh, to Germany. Well, well, the German part was actually taken over by, by, by New Zealand in the First World War. And, uh, so, um, one of the New Zealand, uh, warships actually docked in, uh, German, well, uh, Samoa. And according to the uh, demographics of the time, the islands had about i think about thirty two thousand people eight thousand of them died uh, once uh, once the sailors spread it on, on to, to the local population
1: that's a twenty five percent mortality rate yeah that's
2: a yeah, yeah and uh, and what what i found what I found so far in my research uh, job about about the 1918 pandemic that it 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 really hit hard. The the, the cohort was between 25 to 40. They seem to have been hit the hardest. I'm not saying that the elderly didn't weren't hit, but I don't know. Somehow the elderly seem to have been. I don't know. They didn't have as many deaths as that 25 mm-hmm. to 40 age group.
1: So mm. no, very interesting. interesting. Yeah. Oh. Or the things, so the authorities uh, did what they could in, in difficult circumstances. Obviously, I remember. Yeah. Um, uh, there, uh, but but in those days, we were used to pandemics. Uh, we were used to things like uh, the polio epidemic in the nineteen the fifties, and so I think the the population was more attuned to uh, obey instructions in terms of. Uh, looking after themselves and i think we've forgotten and i think a big lesson about covid 19 is we've got no national disease uh center we weren't prepared in any way and that, to a significant degree what's happening today is, is due to that because there's, there's, there's no memory so as a historian obviously uh you are uh, a great believer in the adage that uh you learn from history exactly right uh, you
2: know it's um now, now Now that you said the learn from history well uh w- one thing that i uh, found out in, in south africa uh with the 1918 pandemic was that they actually established uh, a minister of health and an, and uh and, and um and a and a national healthcare system you know it wasn't brilliant but uh but that was some of the uh that, that was some of the uh, outcomes of the 1918 p- pandemic in 1919 1900. some countries actually moved towards establishing uh, an embryonic national health care system. Mm, that's
1: interesting. So so people did learn. They yes, did learn yes, uh, as
2: such. Uh, you know, uh, I was just, uh, I think you mentioned to me about some cities. Uh, one city that I did come across in the U.S. was West Philadelphia. Now, when the uh, w- when the American troops actually came back, well, of course, you know, they had the you know, the ticket-take parade, you know, uh, Welcome Home, the Heroes. And, uh, you know, there were thousands and thousands of people, you know, you know watching the, the troops march, marching down the main streets of, uh, of, of, of Philly. And, uh, and then, then in a matter of days, the, the, the hospitals of Philadelphia were absolutely inundated with people coming in, you know, having, uh, having these flu-like symptoms.
1: Now, I understand that. In and I know you haven't looked at much at the Australian situation during the 1918-1919 uh, pandemic, but I understand that, uh, as you said, a lot of the rural hamlets and uh, small country towns were exceptionally hit hard because most of the troops that had got many of the troops that have gone overseas were volunteers from country towns where uh, nationalism is a big factor in them volunteering. Yes, 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 yes. Uh,
2: you know. Um I actually, uh, I'm beginning to sort of, uh, this is interesting, uh, Joe, I'm beginning to sort of factor into my research on the First World War uh, that po- possibly one of the causes that may have terminated the war may be shorter uh, than continuing on beyond 1918, may have been the pandemic itself. I, c- I can't prove or disprove that. It needs a lot more research. But that's uh, that's yeah. a sort of uh, gut feeling that I, that I have.
1: That I think that the that, that pandemic actually may have uh, halted a lot more slaughter. So, so, so do you, what think do you think the uh, yeah, I think of that was the German revolt and the Russian revolution and all those uh, all those situations may have been uh, well, they would have been uh, exacerbated. A pandemic would have exacerbated inequality as we're seeing in Australia today, and would yeah, uh, yeah. have actually provided an extra impetus for uh, radical change because I think. I mean, if you if you want to draw parallels, you look at economic parallels. You look at that, I mean, what COVID nineteen has demonstrated to people is the fracture lines in our society, um, real fracture lines regarding the economy and who's paying the price. And the fact that uh, it was uh, poorly paid casual staff uh, in nurse in the nursing home sector, no sick pay, no sick leave, who are in many regards continued to work when they had you know minor symptoms, but. Uh, has led to the expansion of this. And, and, and as you saw, it was only in the last 24 hours the Prime Minister has actually said that they're going to have paid paid leave for these workers. It's just extraordinary. It's taken them since March to do that. Just extraordinary. People just aren't well, learning. Well, uh, 2020
2: is our 1918,
1: 1919. You think it's that bad, do you?
2: Yeah, I think so. I think so. Look, look I, I think this is probably the worst thing that's happened in the last uh, hundred years. And you know, look, and I really, I really dismiss this kind of thing that it's a hoax. And you know, I, I've had, I, I've had uh, people stopping me and saying, "Oh, it's a hoax. It's a conspiracy." I said, I said, look, mate. Okay, in Australia, we've been lucky so far. You know, we're not getting thousands or uh, of deaths and uh, and infections. But I said, uh, I said to one guy about two months ago. Uh, when I was doing some shopping, uh, as such, and I said, I said, you try and tell that to 100,000 families in the United States that have lost loved ones, and uh, and that's a hoax, is it? 100,000 people that have died, that, that that's a hoax. Well, and on Saturday I had had this other guy, uh, he's a, he's a he's a friend of mine, and uh, and I, I just I, I was just feeling a bit pissed off, uh, you know, you know, being locked up. I mean, none of us want, but what is is, and uh, and I and I said to him. Uh, I really laugh at people when they say that five uh, G technology equals, you know, uh, you know, the virus. I said, he said, yes it is. I have it on the highest authority from uh, from people higher up. I said, I said, mate, look, they're two different <clears throat> things. I said, I said, five G technology is radiation. The other one is a virus. Uh, 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 radiation doesn't trigger a, a virus. They're two separate entities. Uh, he said, well, no, no, people- no, you're wrong. I said, okay, I'm wrong, I'm wrong. I said, look. Let's maintain peace. I said, I'm not going to convince you. You're not going to convince me. Let's let's call it here and just be friends. And he said, okay, and, and we just left yeah. it at that. But you know, and it's you know, and it's like, and, and that's the whole thing, Joe, with this pandemic. You know, all of a sudden, every nutcase has come out of the board. Everyone's become a so-called doctor. Everyone's become a so-called medical expert. You know, that's mm. why I listen to to the medical experts. Like, you know, like if I get sick.
1: I'm
2: not going to go to the uh, to the plumber or to the mechanic.
1: I'm going to seek your your, your expertise, uh, you know, in medicine, for example. Well, I think when people face crisis, they're always looking for easy uh, solutions. And uh, conspiracy theories, or I call I don't call them, I don't use the word conspiracy theory because I think that gives it some uh, credibility. I call it delusional belief systems.
3: You know, mm. delusional
1: belief systems come to the fore. I mean, to give you an historical example in. Uh, I think it was 1902 in Sydney when the plague, the bubonic plague, hit Sydney. Um, the population ch- turned on the Chinese that were living there and burnt down their houses because they thought, you know, they were the source of the bubonic plague. Although the plague had been mm. brought across in ships, you know, people, people are always looking for easy answers. And uh, the fact, as you said, irrespective of how it started, the thing is real and uh, we have to deal with it. So how did what happened? How did it disappear in 1919?
2: Any idea? Uh, I haven't, I haven't gone into that aspect yet. You know, um, you know, it's a, it's a big study. I, did, I, thought it'd just be something very, very simple, but my God, once I started digging, uh, I found numerous articles, and, uh, and I say this, uh, anyone who wants to get good materials, uh, enrol, uh, enlist, uh, join the, the State Library of Victoria. You can access wonderful materials from your home.
1: So you've been doing all your research from home using social media. Yes.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, well, well you can't go to any library at the moment. So, no, uh, no. so, so I'm a member of the State Library of Victoria, State Library of uh, the National Library in Canberra. You know, I, I, I go through the, um, what is it, uh, the Library of Congress, as uh, such. So, so you know, so there are many, many wonderful. Archives out there that people can actually access, as such, Mm. and and actually get get this information. But but also too is you can go to Trove, uh, you know, to look at old Australian newspapers that have been digitised. There's a lot of information there on 1919 uh, on on what we're discussing today. And of course, there are many other issues, of course, that they covered in in their in their pages. Uh, You know, you've got Chronicling uh, America. Uh, you know, which is uh, again old American newspapers that have been digitized by the Library of Congress, uh, and you can look at the, there in terms of the the pandemic there. So you know the, there are there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of uh, stories uh, like that. But uh, I haven't looked at uh, a lot of the coverage uh, in the press today because I don't really trust the newspapers of today. I have more faith in the papers of a hundred years ago. They they reported things a lot more accurately than what we do today. That's the feeling which I get, anyway.
1: Why do you think so? Today? You got any idea? Um, why is that? Um,
2: well, that's a good question, Joe. Uh, you know, uh, maybe uh, maybe journalists in those days, you know, would would actually chase up the stories and you know and, and sort of hound the uh, the, the politicians and uh, and all that, and you know and. Uh, some of them had very, very good inside information. Not saying that we don't have good journalists today, uh, as such. You know, I don't regard Andrew Bolt as a good journalist. I mean, he's, a, he's just a, a hack, uh, as far as I'm concerned. But, uh, but uh, having said that, uh, it, it was a different era. Maybe, uh, maybe, maybe people were a lot more uh, honest than, than what they are today. I don't know. It's a, it's, a, it's an interesting yeah, question. Well
1: well it was a rhetorical question because i've i looked at this during my research into the uh, into the Eureka rebellion in uh, 1854 and in Ballarat a city of 25,000 people you had you had four newspapers four newspapers being printed every 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 few days four different newspapers four mm-hmm. different markets four different political viewpoints uh, and uh, in 1919 in australia there would be it would have been thousands of small newspapers which were locally owned, which uh, reported the news locally, which weren't politically aligned to any particular political party across the country. There would have been thousands of newspapers. Today, whether you look at television, radio, even social media, which takes its lead from uh, newspapers, you've got a corporate news outlet, and it's the same information. Which goes to thousands of papers with thousands of the same editorial policy. For example, I don't know if you realise that that James Murdoch has uh, resigned from the Murdoch board because he's sick and tired of the the position which has been taken by his brother Lachlan and his father uh, Rupert regarding climate change and uh, Fox News and the Trump administration and all that. He just can't. So you've got one small group of people controlling thousands of news outlets in many platforms. And I think that's the difference. And that's why, you know, when you, uh, the Andrew Bolts of the world are there because they sell advertising, you know. They don't provide news or analysis. They just sell advertising for the newspaper because of the way they work. And I think that's the difference is that we don't have that. those independent, thousands of small independent local newspapers.
2: Yeah. Well, it's, uh, it's really interesting, Joe, at the moment I'm doing a study on uh, 1922 uh, and I'm using, uh, you know, I'm using Greek newspapers and and and, and English speaking papers. And uh, so when I don't understand something, I, I go I go to the documents that I have to sort of see what what they say. And sometimes I line up the documents with the newspaper reports. Yeah, obviously the newspapers are coming from a different perspective, but but there's some truth in what in what they were writing. You know, the journalists, the correspondents, actually were sending back. Good information, which could, in many ways could be verified or at least substantiated at some point through through the official documents, which were secret then, of course. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, we didn't have this concept of fake news. You had propaganda, but not fake news, that actually changed facts to suit situations. Yeah. Oh, yeah.
2: I mean, it's extraordinary, yeah, isn't it? Well, we live, uh, we, live, we live in an interesting time. I mean, as uh, someone said, we do live in interesting times. <laughs>
1: You realise where that uh, phrase comes from, Terry? Do you know where that phrase comes from? I have no idea who
2: said that. I just picked it, it up, just like it, everyone
1: else. Yeah, it's uh, it's an old Chinese uh, saying to describe chaos. And they would said, uh, you would say, "We live in interesting times." It was a pseudonym for uh, very difficult uh, times, chaotic times. Okay. It There's no certainty. <laughs> everything is everything is up in the air, it's like you. Juggling balls up in the air. That's where that concept comes from. Interesting times. And if you wanted to curse somebody in, in, in China, is many, you know, I'm talking about millennium ago, you'd say, you know, you wish that they'd live in interesting times because of the instability. And that's what an interesting time was. Now, you've taken a, a, a great turn and you've gone to fiction. I find this interesting. Well, historical fiction. What, what is historical fiction? Well,
2: well well historical fiction in my mind is uh, uh inventing uh, uh, fictional characters to try to to describe or or to see historical events through the eyes of these uh, fictional characters and it's uh, you know and, and and of course you know you can manipulate the the history to try and bring it down to a personal level like like, like for example history is written from two perspectives usually joe it's called the History is usually written about great personalities, uh, popes, kings, prime ministers, presidents, emperors, etc. Uh, generals. Uh, the, the other one is, is the history from below movement. The history from below movement is the ordinary person uh, seeing history through the eyes of the, of the ordinary person. So, so that's what I've done. I, I, I've invented fictional characters to try to describe events that happened 100 years ago or 50 years ago,
1: whatever. It's becoming a pretty popular genre, I've noticed. Uh, historical fiction.
2: Yes, uh, yes, it is. Yes, it is. And you know, and um, with a book that that I've got that coming out, uh, I've have signed all. Uh, I've sent all the information at that. I'm just waiting now on an official press release. Uh, mm. It's going to be published in the in the U.S. And um, one of the things that one of the things that I I want to use this book as a as an experiment because what I have in mind is a historical novel, and the historical novel I want to plan for September 2022, which will be the 100 years of the destruction of the city of Smyrna, or smeared by, by Mustafa Kemal Atatürk's army. Uh, basically, it was the end of the Greek-Turkish war in September
1: 1922. Right. Now, let's get back to this uh, book you're publishing. Uh, what's it called again?
2: It's called tales from the last days of Anatolia
1: where the heck is Anatolia most listeners wouldn't have an idea. No, well that's Does why uh, well
2: actually actually uh, the the original title was reflections reflections of Asia Minor but then uh, mm-hmm. but, but then the, uh, the 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 marketing manager of the of the company that I'm working with he, he said to me that's a great title but it sounds more like a uh, non-fiction he said, "But if you give it uh, something an exotic title like Anatolia, uh, it will make it a lot more interesting." And uh, and uh, and I've actually had very positive feedback from people saying yes, that they like the. Well, Anatolia is is another name for uh, modern day Turkey or Asia Minor.
1: Right. Who gave it that name?
2: Well, Anatolia is actually from from the Greek uh, Anatoli, which means east. East yeah so
1: the eastern east. land yeah, It's the east yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: well you yeah. know well i mean i mean i mean look uh modern day turkey was before it ever became uh modern day turkey you you know, before the ottoman empire was uh was actually settled by greeks or venetians you know uh, you know the whole the whole damn lot but you know mm-hmm. but once the ottoman turks uh, t- t- took over in 1453 well, the city well, the composition of the ottoman empire changed you know and gradually the turks became the, the dominant phone, but but if you look at the actual Turks, many of them are actually. Uh, if you go, if you do their DNA, a lot of them have either a Greek, Armenian, or even a, an Assyrian, even even
1: Arab background in them along the way. Uh, well, I think that's one thing about most populations, especially uh, on uh, non-island populations, they have they have interlinked DNA. I mean, that's the history of the human race, isn't it? That's
2: We've right. Uh, got, you know. There's there's no such thing as a pure race. I mean I mean uh, Joe, this, this this thing of race, uh, you know That's that true. I'm a purebred so and so or I'm a purebred this, it's caused so much conflict, so much heartache and misery in human history. You know, uh, as a historian, we haven't really learned anything. We, we're, you know, we're still we're still the same. we we're, we're still the same uh, jackasses like we were back there in the... You know, back in the caveman days, you know, we're beating each other over
1: the head, with you know, with, uh, with baseball bats. Yeah, look, uh, race doesn't exist. As it's not, it's not a, it's not a uh, scientific term. It doesn't exist. There's nothing that, as you said, there is nothing that proves that you are of a particular race. I mean, we, most of us who've got Neanderthal DNA in our system, So you know, it's a, it's a continuum. Human history is a continuum, and um, as you said. When people do these DNA tests, which are now uh, done, who controls these? At the Mormons, isn't it? They they actually, I think, own some of a lot of these DNA things, and they collecting DNA to see who's going to eventually go to heaven. Most people are shocked when they see that they've got this and that, and this and that, in their DNA yeah. is just part of a human family. Yeah. Well, you know,
2: you know. Look, I don't care if I've got uh, three million uh, pieces in me that makes up of, uh, of different races. At the end of the day, I am what I am today. Yeah, yeah. You know, we you know what, of, what I what my ancestors were a thousand years ago, or whatever. I don't particularly care. Uh, you know, I, I care what's 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 within my, my own lifetime. You know, and you know, and then after that, if my kids or my future descendants want to sort of feel what they want to feel, what they want to be in a hundred years' time, well, so be it for them. You know.
1: And mm-hmm. going back to your book, um, what what historical events is it based around?
2: Well, it's a, it's actually based about survivors, uh, people people who experienced deportation, uh, stories of, of good days, uh, people people who ended up going to the to uh, to America as refugees to start a new life. I've also I've also having well. The chief American diplomat at that time in uh, on the on the western side of Turkey or Western Asia Minor was a guy called George Horton. So, uh, so what I did was I fictionalised a uh, George Horton. I gave him an entirely different name. I changed his uh, his life story around to make it a bit so it wasn't people think that I'm copying George Horton's life. So I changed a few things around. I invented this uh this fictional American diplomat so so I tried to cover uh a bit of everything you know you know immigration xenophobia nationalism massacres genocide conflict you know destruction you know uh, d- redemption uh you know even I even I even wrote, a, I even wrote the, one of the one of the short stories because it's really a collection of short stories you see one of the short mm-hmm. of the stories is is a Turk who actually tells his grandkids many years after the events of 1922, for example, that he was friends with, with in the town that he lived. He was friends with uh, with this particular Greek family, and they had interaction between each other. But when the war came, they started to hate each other. He, he didn't hate the Greeks uh, as such, and you know, and when when the when he told the Greeks to actually pack their bags and get out because he knew what was going to happen to them if they had stayed. So he's telling his his grandkids about. How he misses his uh, Greek friend, and and basically that's a thing of of redemption and uh, trying to reconnect again.
1: Mm. Sounds a biblical epic.
2: (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, you know, look, uh, look, uh, I can tell you this: each of the stories in themselves can actually be uh, be a a historical novel in itself, or even even uh, I say this, they could even be made into short short TV drama series.
1: Right. Yeah. Well, maybe one day, but not at the minute. Unfortunately, the way things are. Uh, well,
2: well, but, well uh, that's another story in itself, uh, as such. But anyway, uh, look, uh, you know, I'm, i I've, as I said, you know, I, in the last 12 months, Joe, I've written about 40, uh, 40 short stories, you know, fictional shorts historical fictional stories, and uh, because in the newspaper that I write for in, in the US. Um, you know, I'm only allowed the luxury of between a thousand to twelve hundred words,
0: uh, yeah.
2: as such a, and um, so I would say I've written in excess of forty thousand words in these short stories in the last twelve months.
1: Right, and, and is this the base of the book, or is this the base of the new book?
2: Uh, some of the uh, some of the uh, some of the stories that uh, have already been published in the National Herald, but what I've done is I've extended them out. I've added new uh, new ideas to it, so it's not uh, it's an expanded version. Mm. Uh, as such, uh, at the moment, I've got I've got actually twenty twenty uh, I've got twenty articles sitting in my inbox to be sent to the National Herald uh, yeah, for publication.
1: Right, and how did you form this relationship with the National Herald?
2: Well, uh, when 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 I was living in 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 Oregon. Uh, my 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 friend e john who was my neighbor there my Greek american friend who i uh he actually uh referred me to the national herald and uh, i became friends with the well i knew him even before he came to australia the the owner of the paper and and he said to me uh, he said to me write write anything you want and i 'll publish it and so 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 really uh, so really I started writing for them in the early years, they were sort of like, you know, they would publish one article today and then three months another one. Well, the the last eighteen months, I'm, I'm always been getting one almost every two weeks now. Well, and especially this year, I've had almost one one uh one one every one and a half weeks if I can put it like that. Yeah, well,
1: that's excellent. Is this a is this a monthly? Or is this, I mean, is this a, a day uh, or a a, weekly
2: it, paper? It's a it's a weekly newspaper. It, 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 originally, it was a. Uh, uh, a daily, mm-hmm. uh, as such. Uh, see, see, the National Herald was actually formed, uh, was established in April 1915. Uh, it was uh, formed uh, to uh, to be a counterweight to the royalist mouthpiece, the Atlantis, in, in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Because you see, wow. that's where you get into Greek history, where where, the, where, where Greece was paralysed between the Venizelists, who were supporters of the Greek Prime Minister Eleftherios Venizelos. And the royalists who supported King Constantine.
1: Right.
2: It was the same here in, in Australia too. It was the same thing here too. You know, the the, the Greek diaspora was divided between royalists and and, and Right, right. So,
1: so do you actually write in, in Greek or or is it in no, Greek? no? I
2: write uh, I write in English. So I can write in Greek, but I haven't written in Greek or or Yonks. On yeah. <laughs> Right.
1: Now, you mentioned the website regarding the uh, nineteen eighteen nineteen nineteen 1919 uh, pandemic uh, could you give us some information about that website how can people can access it um it's uh
2: it's it's on facebook it's called uh the the, the spanish flu p- pandemic uh nineteen eighteen something a uh, global perspective look if right. they if they put my name terry Stavridis, into uh uh, Terry uh, Stavridis. If they put th- that into their uh, uh, Facebook search engine, my name sure should come up, and you know, and then uh, then they can sort of uh, see what pages I run or uh, I'm a member of, and then 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 if they wish to uh, to join, they just send me uh, a, a request and I'll and I'll join them, and I'll sign them up.
1: Now, how about the actual? book itself how did people get access to that do they just do it for the Facebook page or which uh,
2: which book are we talking about
1: the one the one you're about to release have you got a cost for' it. Yet I've actually it I've actually have,
2: have a Facebook page called uh, tales from the last uh, from the last days of Anatolia I do have a Facebook page with that name
1: tales of the last day of Anatolia okay now now I don't have
2: the actual publication date yet, because I've just sent all the last lot of paperwork to them. You know, bio and the you know what what the book's going to look like and photographs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, I'm just waiting on them now to, to send me the, uh, the the official press release. But uh, but the thing is, uh, the the book that I've done uh, I've done through a thing called crowdfunding. Yes,
1: which, yeah, everybody knows about crowdfunding, <laughs> but well, you know, actually...
2: Well, actually, uh, actually, the crowdfunding actually saved me a bit of money because uh, because actually people ordered the book without even seeing uh, you know what, what what it looks like. So basically, it's like a leap of faith. So uh, so I now so I now have to deliver the goods to people. So you know, and uh, what I'm actually thinking is uh, since with this pandemic, it's given me a lot of free time to write, and of course you know I do enjoy my daily walk uh, along the Darabun Creek Trail and all that, which is uh, that that that's uh, going to nature every day is just uh, really splendid. It just takes your mind away from the stresses of life, uh, as such, and just walk, walk along. And um, yeah, so uh, so I'm pretty productive at the moment, writing wise. So whilst this pandemic has uh, stuffed up uh, so many people's lives, and I feel and I feel for them, for for me, it's been it's been a boon. Uh, you know, from a uh, you know, I, I try to look after myself health wise. But in terms of a work output, it's been uh, it's been uh, it's been a godsend for me. Well, there's not much else to
1: do, is there, except walking, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Life.
2: You know, you know, and of course, and of course, I miss going to see the soccer as well. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. we still we still have our committee meetings, but the, one of the interesting things now is, you know, uh, if there's like that, at least at least we've got Zoom, and we're able to do uh, conferences and you know meet people through Zoom and th- through like that.
1: Yeah. It's opened up a lot of new avenues for people In the last last five or six minutes of uh, the conversation I just want to uh, ask you about the United States I know you're very well connected in the United States You know a lot of people in the United States You know what's actually going on Could you give us uh, an update of what what you think is uh, happening uh, And also an update regarding the forthcoming presidential election
2: Joe if I if I if I could predict the, the US election I would be the richest man on the planet. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't even hesitate because even, even though Joe Biden may be ahead in the polls, uh at the end of the day it's going to be the um the the delegates that they're going to determine who's going to be president. Mm. You know, you know, and that's uh, and and that's the whole bloody thing with the with the American election. You can you can win the the popular vote, but but if you get the delegates, uh, you know, you've won the election. Uh, but I hope I hope that Joe Biden does win, uh, as such, um, uh, like that. I mean, look, both Trump and Biden are very disappointing. I would have preferred uh, quite seriously um, what's his name uh, Bernie Sanders, but that, that's mm-hmm. okay. You know, he's out. But at least, uh, but at least uh, Biden is a better choice than uh, than what uh, Trump is. But uh, at the end of the day, as you, as you know yourself, Joe, with the, with American elections, anywhere from thirty to forty percent of the population vote for the president. Uh, whereas it, whereas the great great section of uh, I can tell you from friends of mine and family that I have over there, they're basically apolitical. You you say to them, Oh yes, 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 I feel I feel. Do you vote? No. Well then then, then why why then are you upset then if you, if you don't vote?
1: Yeah.
2: yeah. Uh, as such, um, in, in, terms so of, thinking,
1: in terms of, the, yeah. Sorry, Joe. Uh, so I'm thinking in terms of the health crisis. What, um, how are how are, how are things going? Do you think? I mean, you've got, as you said, contacts on the ground. I mean, all I right, do is read reports and you know listen to. Uh, uh, look. To the,
2: well, we're we're lucky here in Australia because you you can go to to the hospital, show your Medicare card, and and off you go. Over there, people uh, people who don't have health insurance and they go with COVID. Some of them have have, have been hit with massive bills, massive bills. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's not uh, it's not free like uh, not like. Well, I say free. I mean, we all pay for it through our taxes. But you know, it's not like, it's not like you go to the doctor there and the bill follows you home. And it's not like as if the bill is manageable. Some of these bills, uh, uh, I, I read somewhere that, that some guy was hit with a bill for hundreds of thousands of dollars you know you know because he didn't have health insurance and you know he got sick with uh, you know with covid so he had to stay there for an extended time
1: in hospital so do you think the fact that they haven't got a national health scheme has actually made the problem worse because people just don't oh, I, think so. I think so i think so
2: too too joe uh, look look if you if you are with an employer eh, it's not bad you can you can you can get by you're still you're still going to have uh, massive out of pocket expenses but but once you lose your job, you are dangling by, by by a thread. So if they cut the thread and you get sick, you fall into 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 the quicksand.
1: Right. Um, with unemployment rate approaching what twenty twenty five percent,
2: yes, a lot it's of a really like
1: other children, yeah. mm-hmm. it's really think, it's re- really really massive. Do you think people are beginning to understand the uh, severity of the problem in the United States of America, or do you think they just Shrugging their
2: shoulders and going on with their lives. Well, I, I think I think it sort of reflects the same thing here to, to, to some extent. You know, some most people think it is serious, and some people and uh, and some say, oh, it's a hoax. You know, it's just a, an ordinary flu. I mean, take take for example the the, the president of Brazil. Oh, it's just a little minor mm-hmm. cold, and, it, 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 and in the end, he ended up getting it himself. Mm-hmm. You yeah. uh, know, you know, and. You and, of course, you know, uh, one of the things, Joe, we, we need to find a vaccine, you know. And uh, and one, one, one extraordinary thing that I notice is the global cooperation in the scientific communities around the world, all working together to some extent, trying to find, uh, you know, the, the, the magic bullet to, to try and solve this uh, thing. Now, I wanted to ask you this uh, as a doctor. What is your view on this hydroxychloroquine? I can't even pronounce it. Hydroxy-
1: It's not a cure, it's not even an effective treatment. As you said, the dilemma is this, the dilemma is this. We have a a virus for which, a new virus for which there is no uh, antibody protection in the community. We don't have a treatment. We've got some partial treatments in uh, very severe intensive care cases which have had some minimal effect. We, although there are over 45 groups working on a vaccine, we don't actually have any real progress Regain a vaccine, so we're, we've only got the we've only got the mask and social distancing. Unfortunately, at the minute, and I can't see a vaccine being readily available for some time yet. Let alone a treatment for a virus. Now, in the last few minutes, um, Terry, I know the universities have been hit around the head, especially the humanities. Now, if there's any listener, a young listener, and we may have one. You never know, is thinking of going to the historical. Uh, Uh, direction what's your advice go
2: for it guys go for it because we need historians because someone has look i'm not going to be around forever and all the historians who are alive today we need to have uh, replacements we need to have cadres that will take on the mantle and do the job even better than what we're doing that's what we want it's all about advancing human knowledge that's what it's about, yeah, but,
1: because without Mr. history, Mister Mr. Morrison, Mr. Morrison tells us we don't need historians. Why do you th- Why do we need historians,
2: Gary? Well, because uh, because look, uh, if you strip away the identity of a human being, what what is there left there, Joe? Nothing. There's an emptiness. Because unfortunately, we human beings, and that includes me, you, everyone else, we seem to repeat the same problems over and over again. And you know, and and the thing is. We never learn the lessons of the past because we all, we seem to be uh, duped, or we seem to be—I um, uh, don't know—like like Macbeth to, to repeat them ad nauseum. So yeah, I rest my case.
1: All right, Terry. Well, I'm pleased that you, you you're going to send in the direction of poverty, but an exciting life. That's what you're you're saying, basically. Is that correct? Oh, no,
2: know. As I said to you, Joe, I'm, I'm 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 about to monetize my my knowledge. That's that's the area that I'm moving into, and I will achieve it. Oh yeah, well, oh yeah. I don't give up, Joe.
1: I don't give up. I know you don't give up. We'll see what happens. <laughs> very hard monetizing in the era of social media. Well, Terry, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much uh, for the opportunity, Joe. Yeah, I wish you all the best in your endeavours for the future. And as you said, I'm a great believer in history because that's all we've got, and it is it is the pathway to uh, solving each and every one of our problems. As a, as uh, hopefully, a, as a hopefully, one. hopefully. It's a pathway. Path okay, it's a path thank you
2: very path. much indeed. All the best to the listeners there at 3CI and to all the staff there. Thank you
1: so much. All the best. Thank you, Terry. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
3: He took my body and put it in a bird with a leak at the bottom destined not to float and the tide pulled out quiet on the way Down the river And out into the bay and There is a ship Saving so